In other regions, it depends on the customer type, right? So you need to really, really understand, are they ready to do this? And, and of course, do they know why they're, they're buying from you? So, so you know, the, the typical kind of sales, you know, uh, you know sales process. So you, you may think they know how to run a procurement process, but you actually they, they may not know how to do that. So so you, you do need to really qualify, pre-qualify so that your sales team don't actually you know waste time. Now where the issue comes usually is they think they can build it and they don't need to buy. That's that's your number one challenge in Southeast Asia. Welcome to the International Expansion Podcast. My name is Ramsey Pryor, and I spent the past five years taking one of Silicon Valley's fastest-growing startups into new markets all around the world as head of international expansion and sales. Tech companies are able to expand overseas faster than ever before, but there's quite a lot that goes into getting it right, and each new market has its own unique and fascinating set of quirks and challenges. The best way to prepare is to learn from people who have been there before, so I started this podcast to gather the best practices from tech's most admired startups. We cover their successes and the things they got right, as well as their mistakes and learnings, all so that you can benefit from their hindsight as you take your company global. Thanks for listening. And if you or your company is looking for guidance on your expansion journey, or if you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Welcome to another episode of the International Expansion Podcast. Today, I'm really happy to have Jeffrey Payne as my guest. Jeff is a co-founder and managing partner at Golden Gate Ventures, an early-stage technology venture capital fund based in Singapore. They focus on Southeast Asia, and they have over $175 million under management and have now made investments in over 45 companies since 2012. Jeff also started and manages the Founder Institute Incubator in Singapore, and since 2010, the Founder Institute has graduated over 100 companies in Southeast Asia and Japan. And Jeff received the Director Award for the Greatest Ecosystem Impact for his work there. He's currently an investor and advisor to Redmart, TradeGecko, Coda Payments. And he's a mentor at JFDI Asia, China Accelerator, and of course, at the Founder Institute. Jeff is also a Singapore native, but he spent the first eight years of his career in early stage venture and private equity here in the U.S., and he graduated from USC. So Jeff understands how things work in Silicon Valley and how people think, as well as how they think and work in Southeast Asia. So he is an ideal person to help folks like me understand how to think about the region when taking technology from here to there. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Jeff, maybe just to start things off, I know this is a broad question, um, but maybe you know, with the context that you've been investing there for 10 years, can you give us just an overall picture of in that 10 years, what has really changed from the investor perspective and maybe from the startup perspective, you know, and particularly since COVID began, you know, what are the big changes that you've seen? And, you know, where where is the market currently for investors and for the ecosystem generally? Um, sure, sure. I think uh, the ecosystem kind of started somewhere in 2009 and 10 um, where you know a few of us started small seed funds in the region um, some of them started purely investing in Indonesia some of them started you know in fact m most of them started investing in the region um, and then you have a few uh, Indonesia only type funds but but the region also have 
funds. Um, they have been there for a while. I think uh, IDG, you know, went went to Vietnam actually be- before 2010, um, and and you know, and, and uh, a number of Japanese funds were were already around. Um, since then, I think to be honest, you know, most of us don't know what's happening when we first, you know, started doing what we're doing. Um, I believe the founders also don't know what's going on, um, but I think along the way they, they kind of learn. But what have changed is a few things. Actually, before 2013, um, if you go to Vietnam or Indonesia, you you do need some kind of a translator, right? Like if you speak at events, um, yeah, you, you need a translator sit, sitting by your side, but right after 2013 that is gone um so i think one major shift is english language that that has kind of you know completely covered the region to a point where you know wherever you go cambodia uh, myanmar you know english is perfectly fine the second thing is uh budget airlines <laughs> so budget airlines became a huge boom uh, from i would say 2008 2009 time um, and that brought the region closer together. As you guys know, um, Southeast Asia is a collection of, you know, about 10, 10 countries. Um, some are connected, most are not connected. So we, we do have to fly around. And, you know, we have different languages, different culture. Um, so budget airlines actually help us kind of, you know, move around fairly um, economically and also help help us with our network you know, our networking and, you know, relationship building, um, both with the ecosystems there, with the founders there, with co-investors there. So it makes it much easier to do business. Um, of course, at that time, you know, we, we, we did not start a fund because there was, there was, you know, there was cheap flights around the region um, mm-hmm. uh, or the fact that people are, you know, getting better in English. We, we don't know that it, it, it just happened. Um, and yeah, it, it is, fairly interesting because if you look at China, you know, they don't, actually don't need to speak English. If you look at, look at India, they are fairly okay with English for, for a certain percentage of them. Um, but in our region, yeah, that, that is actually a question mark back then. But now, yeah, now we are quite, quite okay. And then what happened next is the obvious, but not so obvious where um, the first sort of generation of uh, uh, founders post bubble, right? Post twenty oh three, and closer, I guess post uh, GFC twenty oh eight. It tends to be uh, non technical. It tends to come come from you know decent families, educated abroad, came back with ideas that they saw overseas. Um, so what we call the copycats came right. So in twenty oh eight, yeah, Uber started, and then you know a bunch of copycats around the world. Um, hence, you know, our largest companies here are uh, you know, essentially copycats. Um, and and that, that kind of, you know, started that trend. Now, in the beginning, you know, the founders were actually a little bit lost. Should I copy something from the US, from China, from India, right? Most of them copy from the US. Uh, and if they copied something right, you know, it would have had success in China and India already. So, so then, then they don't have to actually look at them. They can just kind of follow what's happening in the U.S. But the more you see over the years, the more they are actually copying from everywhere. 
sometimes Brazil, sometimes China, sometimes India. But there is still a strong kind of uh, influence from you know US-based companies. So so things things have uh, you know changed a lot. Um, fast forward to today, mentor network. You know, in ten years, have improved. Um, you know, when I when I brought founders to Singapore, the reason was the mentorship layer was quite weak. So I had to fly, you know, uh, CEOs from the Bay Area to 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 to, to Singapore to kind of uh, give give practical advice. Um, now now we don't need that. Right? Now in the region, there's enough people. We have second third, third generation founders here, um, and once in a while, yeah, we, we do have people coming from Europe and from US. Um, and even from China and India, so so it's now it's a little bit. In fact, it's a lot, a lot, a lot better. And talent in general too, right? It takes time for people to understand how startup engineering works. Uh, most of them kind of scramble and kind of like figure out how how to do this. Um, and a lot of the talent in the, in the beginning was from banks, from bank IT departments, and they came over. And you know the tech stack was a little bit different, and and you know everybody needs to learn and, and go through that process. Now, uh, it is still difficult to find good tech people, but it's you know uh, people have multiple startup experience; they they know how it works now. Um, you know uh, we 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 do have good basis of technical talent in you know uh, in, in Vietnam, for example, and upcoming in Taiwan. Yeah, it's uh, that's an interesting thing, and a lot of big, big uni- unicorns do have uh, R and D centers in India. So, so we are kind of, you know, a little bit cross border, a little bit remote. We, we we are quite comfortable with teams in different countries. Um, that's probably a, another thing unique about Southeast Asia. We we tend to be okay with different teams doing different things in different countries. For example. Your UI UX could be in Philippines, customer service in Philippines, your tech in India and Vietnam. Uh, your you know your your main management could be in Jakarta or Singapore, and then you you have sprinkled you know you know uh, launch teams, community you know community managers in different uh, regions. So it's a very interesting uh, thing to to note. Uh, it's quite different, right? Because we are not one country. Um, we we are, we have many many different countries. And most recently, obviously, there's a lot more money coming, right? Um, Series B, C, public listed, uh, American public listed, uh, huge funds from Europe. Um, you know, all the specs, spec sponsors from the West are coming down here. Um, China money is coming on out. Uh, Japan, Korea is coming or has been around for a while. Then um, the family businesses. Um, Conglomerates are getting into the game, right? So whether they are mm-hmm. adopting tech, understanding tech, working with them, investing in them, or acquiring them, so so they are getting a little bit more um, active. Not every country is, but most of them are. So, so so it's a good sign. Yeah. Very interesting. And Jeff, um, you know, my perspective comes from that of someone whose job it was to take a technology that had clear product market fit all around the world. And a lot of people um, here in Silicon Valley get to that point so much more quickly these days where you know, the product market fit is there, the funding is there, and there's this just mandate to now go conquer the world, so to speak. And um, for a lot of companies, a lot of people that I talk to, um, when they think about where to go first, 
they usually think about markets like Western Europe or they think about Australia for the reasons, you know, logical reasons, uh, cultural familiarity, language, um, sales motion, the go-to-market might be the most similar there in, in those markets. Um, but when I was in the role, um, we did the same thing. But I found that when we got to Southeast Asia, things actually went much more quickly. And of all the markets that we entered, it was one of the most receptive. And I would say it was a combination of a lot of those same factors, so English-friendly, um, fantastic business environment there in Singapore, uh, very accommodating. Um, but also, I, I guess one of the differences I found was that compared especially to Europe, there was just a willingness to try new technology, to adopt new things instead of trying to get people to change um, when they were maybe a little uh, reluctant to change. Um, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts. Um, where do you think Southeast Asia ought to fit in the priority list for say, a company that was born in Silicon Valley, definitely going to be global in nature and starting trying to figure out prioritization of markets? When should a company start thinking about going into Southeast Asia? Um, good question. I think it, it, in the past, it has always been, like like a while ago, um, yeah, the, the pattern, because um, there's a difference between B2B and B2C. But the, the general pattern is, yeah, you, you start in the US and then you, you land yourself in Europe, usually it's the UK. Um, and then you don't come to APEC until you stop stop in Japan first, right? You do like a JV or you find a partner, you do Japan, and then you come down to, to, to the Oceania, so like the Australia, New Zealand. And then from there, you kind of figure out if it's B2B, then go to develop Asian cities, right? Like Singapore, Hong Kong, Taipei. Uh, Bangkok, KL, right, kind of like that, and, and then the rest are kind of like okay, not not there yet, right? Like, like B, especially B two B, that's not there yet. Um, but then you have B two C, where sometimes you launch it globally, and then for some reason, you know, Thai, you know, like like, like Thailand, you know, Thai users are using it a lot, right? For example, Social Camp, when Social Camp started, yeah, it exploded in Thailand. And they, they they have no idea why to, but but I know because I've been asking, <laughs> I've been asking the receptionist at my Thai boxing place. I was like, what what are you doing? She said, oh, I'm I'm sharing my makeup videos on social. Like <laughs> 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 so I, I kind of know, and I was like, why are you watching? Oh yeah, watching everybody sharing makeup makeup tips. <laughs> <laughs> so that's her use case, right? But but I think most of the use cases are more social. Um, so so I would say. The formula is roughly the same still. I would say usually it's English speaking, uh, you know, potential of revenue. So if it's B2B, it is still fairly English speaking, uh, developed cities, developed Asian cities that, you know, that has the, uh, has the budget. Um, they have been sourcing for solutions globally. Um, the people that, you are selling to, they are pretty global in nature. You know, many of them probably did their MBAs in the US. Um, they are sourcing for the best products around the world, not just in the country or in Asia. So they are very receptive to, you know, uh, companies from, from, from anywhere. But, and then in Japan, for some reason, this, re uh, this few, this few years, uh, many of them skip, skip Japan. Uh, but I can tell you, if you do B2B, please look at Japan. Japan mm -hmm. has huge uh, 
corporate IT spending. And, you know, you guys know that the biggest companies in Japan are very, very big, right? Now, obviously, they, they need to buy from local companies. So you, your, your entry usually is through a partnership, usually. Um, but you in Japan, generally, the, the density of startups are not that high. Hence, even if they want to source something locally, they, they can't find anyone. So, so if you have very good you know, products, um, just find a partner in Japan and you can actually charge more money. Uh, that's another thing you don't, uh, you guys don't understand. In Japan, if you charge more, that means you are good, right? Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's, and, and if you can charge more, means your partner can make more, right? So actually it's a good thing. Um, so, 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 you know, when you look at your, 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 um, you know, your uni economics in Japan is actually quite, quite, quite decent. But but if you take away Japan, yeah, um, developed cities tends tends to be the next port of call. You need to understand where your customers are, um, and then of course Australia, New Zealand seems similar, right, to Canada or the UK. Mm-hmm. But like you pointed out, uh, some companies there they are you know they are not so receptive. They prefer to outsource to a local company to build, right, and not to buy from a foreign company. So, so there's a little bit of that, uh, but you, you do need to understand what, where you operate, who your customers are, who actually understands you, uh, who pays for it and who uses it, right? But that's pretty much B2B. But in Asia, um, the trick is actually B2B, the trick is to land one customer, usually in Singapore or Hong Kong. And this customer tends to have multiple offices. And then what they do is they'll push you to the multiple office, right? So if you land an insurance company in Hong Kong, they'll push you to Singapore and, you know, in KL and Bangkok. Um, and, and that's one quick way to kind of scale, right? By landing one customer and they push you to other offices. Mm-hmm. And when you land, right, then you start figuring out, oh, okay, this, this city or this country actually has more potential, right? Then, then you start to hire your local Rep, right. Um, so, so you don't have to jump in Singapore first. Sometimes it may be somewhere else. It may be Hong Kong. It may be, you know, uh, and many people overlook Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is also a developed, uh, you know, developed Asian country. Um, so, you know, and they are highly technical, as you guys know, right? Um, mm-hmm. they are, they are, um, yeah, actually, they, they literally can rival uh, Vietnam in terms of their STEM education and, and you know the way they understand tech um, and many of them you know um, study in the US they came home um, and uh, and you know in the past was different in the past many many stay in the US you know they, they work in the, in China but now they don't really work in China anymore so they they, they stay put in, in Taiwan more right? so a lot of them are coming back so yeah so I think it depends so long and short of it is depends on what you do B2B B2C but there are different playbooks for Asia, Southeast Asia, and even India, right? In India is a huge place that you, you can consider, but but it all depends on your end goal. Sometimes the goal is growth. Sometimes the goal, the, the goal is revenue, right? Mm-hmm. So different goals, you, you do different things. Fair enough. And in my experience, we kind of did the same approach that you kind of detailed there where... Um, we started in Europe, 
we were in India. Uh, we actually left Japan for a later day just because of the amount of localization and upfront investment. I think we were in the mode of optimizing for really momentum and you know speed of covering uh, as as much of the market as we could as fast as possible. Um, we chose Singapore as a hub to as a springboard really for the region. And I think it had a lot of benefits. Um, but of course, Singapore in itself has cust- did have customers for a B2B enterprise company, which is what we were. Um, but we were next to these markets to, uh, that to us seemed so gi- gigantic and interesting, uh, you know, namely Indonesia and Malaysia. But um, we knew that despite you know, the population and of course you know, the internet um, enabled population, GDP, all the factors that you look at to size a market, um, there's also this factor of ability to really execute and you know, sort of willingness to pay and all those things that come into play. And at the time, you know, Indonesia was such a massive market and it was also growing and maturing so quickly that we knew that in the future, one day, this is going to be a massive market for us. But we just didn't know when and we didn't know how to like really put that into perspective. Um, you know, I'd love to know now, you know, in 2021, almost, you know, getting into 2022, um, do you have a relative sort of ranking of the markets within Southeast Asia for, say, a B2B enterprise SaaS company? Um, or how would you even think about um, how to sort of factor in the language support, the willingness to pay, the complexity of going into a place, uh, especially as you get into markets like Vietnam or Thailand, where language becomes a factor again, even if it's getting increasingly English speaking. But how do you, how would you think about prioritizing those markets within Southeast Asia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so B two B enterprise, um, you know, if your let's say your AOV is above fifty grand, fifty thousand a year. Um, your strategy is it's actually rather difficult, right? So let me explain. Um, if you're based in Singapore to start, I think that's a good step, right? Because Singapore doesn't have much red tape. You know, things are not very gray here. Um, mm-hmm. So if if they want you, they'll, they'll have, you know, you, you, you get the meeting. Um, if they're looking for products, they'll, you get a meeting. If they are sourcing for vendors, you know, they are putting on an RFP, you, you, you get the meeting. Um, and there's usually no funny business. Um, so you know right away whether you fit, right? So, so they don't drag you. They don't, you know, they don't want different things from you. Um, it's, it's pretty clear whether you fit or not. In other regions, it depends on the customer type. Right, so you need to really, really understand: Are they ready to do this? And and of course, do they know why they they're buying from you? So so you know the the typical kind of sales you know uh, you know sales process. So you you may think they know how to run a procurement process, but you actually they, they may not know how to do that. So so you you do need to really qualify pre qualify so that your sales team don't actually you know waste time. Now where the issue comes usually is they think they can build it and they don't need to buy. That's that's your number one challenge in Southeast Asia, even in Singapore, right? Because they can 
they can pass it to their R&D team, they can pass it to their R&D team in Vietnam and India, and then they think they can build it themselves. So mm-hmm. what they'll do is they'll, they'll talk to you and try to figure out what you do and say, oh, I think we can build this ourselves. We don't need to pay you. Right? Now, this is the largest difference between American customers and you know, customers in our, our region. Even, even Hong Kong, Taiwan, Indonesia, Malaysia, we are not there yet. They are kind of like, oh, this is not mission critical. We have enough people, we have enough bodies to throw at it. I think we can build this ourselves, right? But in the US, if it's not mission critical, I'll outsource it, right? Like, uh, I'll get mm-hmm. someone to do it better. I'll just connect the SDK API, and I don't need to worry about that. Let me focus on the mission critical stuff. Now, it's partly because maybe. You know, uh, it's hard to find engineers in the US, it's expensive, etc. Or they don't want to outsource too much to, to you know, India, etc. So it's easier to just pay for it, right? Uh, pay another company for it. Um, so, so I think that maturity hasn't really tipped over yet in terms of, oh, I need to outsource this. I need to just make it easy and get an API and then, you know, then my team can focus on other things. Which means you do need to be qualifying customers carefully, um, which means a few things. One customer referring another customer may not, you know, uh, has a, have a high conversion rate for you because they may still have the same problem, right, internally. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll, I'll build it myself, right? Whereas in the US sometimes, you know, uh, like a case study that you post you post on, on, on your website or actually can get more inbound leads, right? Um, in mm-hmm. in yeah in, in, in Asia, uh, if an anonymous inbound lead comes in, that's a good chance. But if it's referral or cold call, yeah, it's 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 a lower chance. Um, but I think as long as you qualify, you understand some nuances. Uh, what will make them push you all the way to the end and sign a contract with you? Um, and and all the internal kind of thinking, right? Internal thinking and oh, should I build this myself? Kind of kind of thing. Um, should I work with a couple? Should I work with a small company? Number one, will they be around next year? Right? Mm-hmm. They have this worry. Two, can I build this myself? Now, where where things may tip over is they will build it themselves, and then they find that it cannot work. <laughs> then they'll come mm-hmm. back to you. Yeah. So sometimes it is education, give them a bunch of stuff to look at, uh, show them a demo, and then you you have to think oh, they're gonna they're gonna build it themselves, right? But you know that they will come back to you in six months, right? And then you just kinda yeah. like support them and give them some encouragement. And when they crash, you say, Okay, come, come, come talk to me. Um, so I think if you have that mentality, I think you should be okay. I think yeah, how you set your sales teams and how you you know, get expectations from your sales team. You know, but sometimes you close deals much later because they try themselves and then they fail and then they'll come back to you. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that too on you know B two C. I felt that on the B two B side um, that, like you said, um, what succeeds elsewhere doesn't necessarily translate. So it really required a different approach to selling software. And you know, I think the top-down model that you mentioned, getting a couple of really big conglomerates that have 
uh, tentacles throughout the region was really helpful in the early days. Um, there's also been a number of big companies that it, B2C companies that have tried to go to Southeast Asia because they see the opportunity and the number of people and the addressable market. Um, but they get it wrong a lot of the times. And there's been a lot of famous retreats um, as well. And I, I would love to know, especially um, you know, whether it's ride sharing or some of the B2C type services with, despite all the money and all the focus on trying to, to succeed, um, they've failed. And I'd like to maybe get your perspective on the companies who have done the best of expanding from either the US or somewhere else into Southeast Asia that have actually made it work. You know, what are the things that they do that seem to, you know, sort of explain why they succeeded where other people failed? Um, let me see. So B two C, I you can categorize under two 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 types. Um, one is um, you do not require any launching, any local partnerships, any local kind of uh, omni-channel kind of thing. You just launch from your basement, right, in in China or in the US, and people just. Yeah, it, it, you just do online marketing and you, you get there. And the mm-hmm. product itself is pretty standardized, right? So you, you either like my UI UX or you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually B2C, as you know, there is usually one one or two winners. Everybody else will disappear. Um, so that, that doesn't, doesn't need to be that much localization. So that's one type, right? So... You know, some some good. You know, America has a bunch of you know good good. You know, like like IG and all that, and China has a bunch like like TikTok and all that. So, so those and and game gaming companies is the same, right? You don't typically localize a game for one country. Um, mm-hmm. China does, right? Uh, Chinese games they do localize languages when they when they launch elsewhere. So that's one category. Um, that category, I think, is okay. I think most of it is more like. Uh, viral. If they see someone trying it, they'll try it. If they see their friends try it, they'll try it. Um, how you do marketing there is pretty much localized marketing, city, city like dense city marketing. Right? Like Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City has about seven point five million people. So if you just you know bombard cities, and they are young, right? Like sixty percent are below thirty years old. Um, if you bombard that city, if one person is using it, chances are four of their friends knows that he's using it. Right. So so it will kind of viral by itself. Um, mm-hmm. So you roughly need to know how to how to bombard and cover cover uh, you know, city city based marketing. Um, then the other the other type of B2C, you know like like the right hailing where you need to have your team launch team, you need to talk to local people to try your app and download your app and give me your bank details, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That Usually, you are sort of connecting to other people or engaging with other people who are running businesses, small businesses, right? So if you if you drive your if you drive a cab, you, you are running a transport business. It just happened to be one person. So when they use something, they need it to be a bit localized. Um, then the users using it, same thing because I'm booking from someone who's local. Then I'm paying someone who's local, right? So everything's everything is local, right? 
because the, the, the stakeholders, the connections are local. So these type of companies, there are two issues. One is they hire wrongly, right? So your launch guys are wrong, your general managers are wrong. So the main usual mistakes is the hire, they hire wrongly. So so they, they tend to you know change it up after a while. Second thing is uh, the localization of the app or you know the service is not fast enough, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the moment you launch in one country, a bunch of feedback comes in, right? For example, hey, I need to be paid today, not not in not not T plus seven, right? I need to be paid this way, right? Or that kind of thing. Or the map doesn't work, or whatever, right? So so there's a bunch of feedback coming in, and if your product hit sits somewhere in Europe or in the US mm-hmm. and you ask them to change something from you know one country in Southeast Asia they will probably tell you no right? or it's like rank number 51 right in their features list mm-hmm. so so then chances are you know they, they 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 iterate slower so the one that will win will be the one that hire properly and iterate the product faster for that either sometimes it's country by country sometimes it's region by region and and the faster you localize the the, the better you you'll be mm. yeah that's uh I'm, I'm just thinking of so many examples and that definitely resonates and I, I can now see um kind of thinking through the ones who have stuck around and have succeeded and the ones that didn't make it I can totally see why and um yeah I've also been on the side where I was feeding product, uh, a lot of feedback in from lots of places in the world. And um, when you look at the value of a contract per se, uh, that might be on the line, and you know, that is what prioritizes uh, that in the queue. Um, really what you need to be thinking about is uh, that's really the entire country. If you can't make those changes, you're not going to succeed there at all. Yeah. Even then, it's hard to, to get that. Have you seen uh, companies, foreign companies, kind of... It, maybe deploying a local product team just so that they can be faster um, when iterating? Do you see that model happening where they have you know, a branch of the code or a product team that's deployed just for the region? Yes, I think there are. So I think... But, but of course, I, it depends on how they structure it. Sometimes they structure... Let's say there are three apps in three countries, but the product team sits in India, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes they have teams sitting in that country, right? So let's say a Korean company launching in Vietnam, they, they tend to have the team sitting in Vietnam. Uh, and, but the Indonesian team launching in Vietnam or Philippines, they tend to have the team back in Jakarta or in India. Um, so so it depends. But yeah, there, there is some... And, and sometimes it's obviously needed. For example, a Korean app versus a Vietnamese app is completely two different world. So they, they have no choice. They, they knew it from the start. They, they have no choice. They cannot bring the Korean thing over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Globalization Partners. Many people assume that in order to enter a new country, you have to set up a new entity for your company, which can mean engaging in months of filings, years of investment obligations, legal fees, and a boatload of aspirin for all those headaches. That's a really heavy burden, especially if you're only hiring a few employees or if you're still testing a particular market. 
Globalization Partners invented a better way of hiring talent in other countries in 2012 that allows you to focus on hiring the talent you need and growing your company while they take care of the employment details. They provide locally compliant employee contracts, manage payroll, pensions, benefits, and a lot more as part of the package. And they cover 187 countries and 180 currencies. They offer all of this through their proprietary technology platform and provide experts you can call on when tricky situations come up anywhere in the world. And take it from me, these situations do come up frequently. And when they do, you want the most experienced people and the best technology behind you. For more information, visit globalizationpartners.com and choose the country you'd like to learn more about. And Jeff, you mentioned, um, I know you have a lot of expertise in Vietnam, and I wanted to ask you about that market. You also mentioned Taiwan as one that companies should be keeping in mind. What types of companies should be thinking about those two markets? Is it B2B? Is it B2C? Is it um, a little bit of both? And why are those markets so interesting to you? Uh, yeah, well, uh, Vietnam is what, 90, 100 million people. Um, similar size as the Philippines. So I, I think if you look at Southeast Asia, they are probably the second largest or at least second most targeted. Um, Singapore being Singapore being the kind of where most money goes, but sometimes Singapore companies launch in Vietnam and, 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 and in Indonesia. And then a lot of money do go to Indonesia. Um, the last three years, there's, there's much more money going to Vietnam. Now, why Vietnam? I think largely they, they are a lot more tech savvy, uh, a lot a lot younger. Um, in, when I when I went there to invest the first time, twenty twelve, you, you will notice, you know, their their data plans are pretty cheap. You know, uh, back then, twenty twelve, um, the number one phone is actually a jailbroken iPhone. So the one sell, the number one selling phone in in Vietnam is jailbroken iPhones iPhone four or five, so so it's a very weird kind of kind of kind of taste, um, and the reason is quite similar to Philippines, but not quite that intensity. Vietnam and Philippines, uh, you know, were introduced to like land gaming, like internet cafe type gaming, mm-hmm. a while ago, like like late probably like mid two thousand five, so. So getting, so so the young, you know, people like 10, 12, 13 years old, they were playing playing games in land, you know, like internet cafes. And these are games, games like, like you know, MMO type. Uh, mm-hmm. And they were really young playing all this stuff. And when they, you know, move, so, so they're actually tech savvy when they were very young. Um, and of course the country, you know, prides itself with STEM education. If you if you ask any you know any Vietnamese parent, uh, yeah, if if their kids are engineers, that's probably the best. Right? It's usually government and then engineers. So the tax savviness is pretty pretty clear. You can see, and then the country is quite young, and then with the introduction of foreign you know games and the, uh, the mobile version of games became very normal. Whereas uh, Indonesia kind of skipped skip the internet cafe thing. So when you introduce MMO mobile in Indonesia, they don't know how to play it because right? they have never played it before. Mm-hmm. So Indonesia, if you introduce casual games in Indonesia, yeah, export because it's easier to play. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so, 
so there is certain sort of uh, tech adoption kind of differences in the country, but Vietnam, I think, is a bit. It's quite quite a hit. Uh, technical talent, R and D talent. You know, a bunch of R and D centers are, are there from the US, especially game game studio R and D is in Vietnam. So so the entire country seems to be more, you know, uh, tech savvy. You know, the the mobile operators. There's at least five. Right? Probably most of them are government owned, very cheap. Uh, broadband. Uh, this is another thing I found. Uh, broadband is free everywhere you go. <laughs> you walk on the street. There's Wi-Fi everywhere. <laughs> free and unlocked. Yeah, free and wow. it's open. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes if they have a password, you just ask them what's the password. They just give it to you. Right. <laughs> so so. But then when I went to Jakarta, nothing's free. Everything's locked. <laughs> they don't give you passwords. <laughs> so it's a complete different. I was like, eh? right? Because you know, if we travel, we 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 work in cafes and we you know we bounce around in the phone and everything. Then we it's a very clear difference. It's like, oh. So so I asked them like why? Oh, because it's very cheap. It's like 40 bucks a month, it's very cheap. So I can give it to you. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, wow. So so that's another thing, right? So so I think infrastructure, uh costs, right? But I, I think yeah, the government kind of like make make sure that everyone everyone have access, and and now mm, I would say B to C. You you should you should definitely take a look at Vietnam. Um, B to B, it is still a little bit behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they do need a lot of local kind of presence. Um, there is a way of selling B to B in Vietnam, and there's a difference between north and south. So all that means a few things. If you want to do B2B, first, you have to make sure that your timing is correct. Chances are you're too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether enterprise, probably way too early because they can, they, they, everyone thinks they can build it. Right. Still. Uh, SaaS, they don't understand SaaS. And if you're a foreign company, they'll probably never talk to you. <laughs> okay. So they are not ready. B two C, yes. Like I said, uh, Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh City combined is at least at least fourteen million people. So if you just launch in just just that two cities, you, you mm-hmm. like I said, you know, it's very dense, and the people are young and everything. It's very easy to spread. So so as long as you localize it properly, um, yeah, then 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 there, there is no issue. It, uh, I think Facebook took over Vietnam in two years. And it just yeah, when became number one. I think Facebook chat is still number one um, yeah. over there. So so Vietnam, yeah, Vietnam is uh, and and of course, economy is booming. Property is up uh, with the China situation, right? Manufacturing is up. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, many companies are moving from China to Vietnam. So so overall, and Koreans are huge investors in Vietnam. So overall, it's on the right trajectory. And if you buy real estate, probably in 2015, you probably double. <laughs> um, already. Yeah, already double. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, and it's a you know, very, very, yeah, very cool country. Great city, great people, great food, as you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Taiwan, now Taiwan is a unique place. It's, you know, like 28, 30 million people. You can argue... It's the same size of Malaysia, right? 
Mm-hmm. Their 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 per capita income is actually larger, right? Uh, they are probably half the size of Hong Kong, like like economy power wise. Um, so so actually, market by itself, that there is there is some something there. Uh, and in Taiwan, same thing. Uh, STEM STEM education is a huge huge thing. Um, working for government is not a huge thing, <laughs> but STEM is a huge thing. Okay. So, and for whatever reason, uh, in the last 20, 30 years, the, I would say the salary levels of fresh graduates have not changed very much. That's quite weird, right? It's very well-known fact that when you, when you graduate, you, 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 you make very little money <laughs> in Taiwan. <laughs> Till today. Just accept that. <laughs> Till today. I don't understand why. But till today, but obviously, you know, uh, certain sectors have changed, right? Like the banking sector, they kind of like make it, you know, more, more, more healthier. But what happens is you can find a lot of engineers for very cheap prices, um, and most of them, you know, wants to live in Taiwan. They don't want to go anywhere else, mm-hmm. like like before, right? Um, and and they are very good. That's the thing, very good engineers, right? Like like in Hong Kong. STEM is not a thing. Right. Uh, most people are banking, right? Uh, yeah. So, but in Taiwan, STEM is a thing. It's, it's quite different. Uh, so Taiwan is like Vietnam, but different, right? Uh, different mm-hmm. culture, different language, different everything, but it's STEM, right? Like, a, it's very clear, STEM. Um, whereas Indonesia, not so much. Malaysia, not so much. Uh, Philippines, not so much. So uh, even Singapore... No, <laughs> Singapore banking. Okay. Singapore is like Hong Kong. <laughs> banking is number one. Um, so, so that's the reason why. If you're thinking of R and D, R and D hubs, Vietnam and Taiwan, and India, right? These three, these three powerhouse. Uh, yeah, you you can consider. Okay, and then um, Jeff, if you were hiring uh, for engineering in Taiwan and Vietnam today. Um, how how prevalent is it or how easy is it to find fully bilingual talent? And would you want to have, you know, say a dev manager that's bilingual and be okay with, you know, maybe re- re- loosening a bit the language, uh, I guess, expectations for the engineers? Is that a viable model or do you want kind of fully bilingual to, um, if, if you're not going to yeah. be actually a company from the region? Um, it depends on how you run your firm, right? Run your company. But generally, the best way is to have your first hire be bilingual and the first hire be the overall project manager um, mm-hmm. or CTO. Because for the really young and locally educated engineers, their, their English are not that good. And even if it is, they are not confident to, to speak it. So... Yeah, so as long as you have your your top guy, so that you can kind of uh, get get your message and, and, and your communications across, then then you should be okay, um, because they, they they know how to manage the bottom, right? So so sometimes the team, the engineering team can be as big as fifty, right? And then you have like scrum teams of six, right? So there is no way for a you know, foreign head of product to talk to like fifty people. So you, you do have to, you have uh, the, the guy on the top 
um, that, that can kind of like watch them and manage them every, every day. Um, so then, then your challenge then is to find that person, right? That person probably don't come that cheap, but in Vietnam, Vietnam, yes, not that cheap, but for foreigners, it's, it's okay. But because of the last 10 years, yeah, you have to hire properly because chances are they will move on quite often to get higher salary. So you need to understand their motivation for joining you and you need to hire them. And once you hire them, yeah, there there is a chance they will leave, right? Like within two years or three years. So you, you need to understand a lot of things and give them what they want. Okay. And Jeff, I, I have more questions than you have time, but maybe zooming out just a bit again and um, you know, sort of thinking about um, the coming years. If there were a founder of you know, you, a Silicon Valley-based company that is onto a really hot product, it's definitely going to go global and they want to enter Southeast Asia. Um, you know, your advice these days just in terms of like how to think about the region or, you know, mistakes that you've seen people commonly make that they should definitely avoid or, you know, what, what would your guidance be in terms of uh, seeking out good advice on how to approach the region and definitely things to avoid or misconceptions that they should be aware of? Misconception. Um, it, yeah. Again, it depends on, yeah, uh, B2B or B2C, but I think the best way is to find, uh, any foreign startup that is similar to your category. Like let's say if you do B2B SaaS, you find another foreign startup that does B2B SaaS. Let's say you want, you, you're looking at Vietnam. Uh, the, the advice is to try to understand other people going in and then try to pick their brains quick, very quickly mm-hmm. because they, they would have the freshest data for you, right? So they, oh, they, they, they just landed a year ago. Then they'll give you all the, all the tips. Or they landed and they left. Mm-hmm. They pulled out, right? Yeah. Then they'll tell you why they pulled out. Um, so get the freshest stuff because things change every year. So get get people who have done it recently to to give you the nuggets, especially in your area. Oh, I need to sell to you know, let's say uh, a typical customer is a large factory, you know, in in northern Vietnam or a grocery chain, right? Grocery store chain in in the city. So how do I sell to them? You you ask directly. You ask directly to a foreign foreign company, not to a local company. Mm-hmm. Then you have to find someone local to tell you how local works. But you have to find someone that is transparent with you, because sometimes they don't say things. They don't say the real things <laughs> to someone <laughs> they don't know or to a foreigner, right? Because they want they don't want to scare you. Right, so you need to find someone because if you find a foreign founder who has been there, succeed or fail, the foreign will tell you, right? Because you are foreign too. Mm-hmm. So whether they like it, they don't like it, they'll tell you. But a local, they have a in Vietnam, there are some countries the national pride is very high. They don't tell you things that are real, like on the ground real, right? They don't tell you. So you need to find people to refer people. So like you can ask me, I'll refer someone and that person is very transparent, right? You need to kind of figure out where these people are and then ask them, oh, I have this product, what do you think, right? 
Um, and if I want to do this, what do I do? Right? Um, so for me, the best way is get local Intel, collect data, and then like then you 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 know go in a few more times. Right? Then you understand uh, how you should do it. For example, should I do the sales? Should I hire someone? Should I partner with someone? Like what do I do? Um, and when I make a sale, do I need to build a team? Or should I build a team before I do the sale, right? So there's a bunch of things moving around. And then how do I close a sale, right? There's a difference between cities, J- J- Jakarta, Taipei, it's all quite pretty different. So, so yeah, just, just understand how, how people do it, how locals do it, and then how foreigners going in do it. So you can see the difference, right? Um, and if they pulled out, that means probably they didn't do what the locals did. Mm-hmm. You can uh, maybe they did what the locals did or more, right? Because y- you do need to prove yourself more because you're a foreigner. Uh, so maybe the the, the, you know, the foreign company actually did more than the local companies. Um, so if you know both, both stories or both playbooks, then you can kind of like, ah, okay. Okay, this is the playbook I can do, right? Because sometimes mm-hmm. in emerging countries, there are a lot of gray things you, you cannot do. So these are the things I can do. These are the things I cannot do. <laughs> and and you're like, oh, if I do this and not this, I can still succeed. So it's like, okay, let's let's do it, right? Because sometimes, yeah, what whatever where you're from, whatever you're doing, sometimes you know things you really cannot do. <laughs> and then you know that if I cannot do this, I don't succeed. Then I better don't do this, right? That means I better don't come in. I go somewhere else. Um, so you don't want to be stuck, right? You don't know your data. You come in and then they, then you know you realize the business practice is this way, and you're like, oh my god, I cannot do this, right? So so you wasted time and resources, right? Yeah. So you have to understand every single yeah, country. It's that it sounds like I'm sure you know simple advice, but it's incredibly <laughs> true. And you know you were one of the people that helped give us that. Um, very candid, direct advice about markets. Uh, and that basic strategy was was so important for us to know what we were getting into before we went into a market and mm-hmm. to kind of um, be skeptical of people who um, might have had a different reason to give us one answer or another, but to talk to as many people as you could. And I felt like, especially in markets, tricky markets like Japan, if you talk to enough people, um, eventually you hear a pattern of, yeah. you know, I've heard this now three or four times and, and I have a lot of confidence that this is the way it's going to be. And uh, that was yeah. super helpful. Um, Jeff, maybe just one more question for you. Um, you talked at the beginning about how there was this period of copycat technology happening and you know, a lot of the, the startups and entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia taking what was working elsewhere and doing the local version of it. And you also mentioned that now there's a second generation of entrepreneurs. And you know what I'd really like to know is, um, do you see any born in Southeast Asia technologies? Um, you know anything that you're really excited about that is different and was really native and born there that you think is going to now proliferate into other markets? And just as an example, I remember I don't know how what year it was, maybe 2018. Someone showing me TikTok, who had come to this. California from China and showed me TikTok and told me everyone was using it. And when I looked at it, I was like, oh yeah, this kind of reminds me of Vine, but I don't see why people are going crazy for it. 
And now, you know, I just, in a few seconds, I couldn't see what was so compelling about it. But of course, now it's everywhere. But is there anything that you see bubbling up over there that you think, you know, this is going to be big everywhere? And also it, you know, started here, or it was a use case or a pattern that, you know, really started in Southeast Asia? I think pure B2C stuff, uh, not much. I think in the past, it has always been uh, Koreans that are driving it. Right, so they they are very good. The reason is, um, you know, they they are a gaming powerhouse, right? And mobile games are huge, and the teams that are full stack, you know, their 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 back end guys for gaming is extremely good. So, and then their front end, right? If you look at all their chat apps and look at, you know, all, even now all, all the B two C apps in in Korea is quite quite cute and quite cool. Yeah, in the past, Korea tends to 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 have something quite unique. Um, mm-hmm. I believe they probably started the. How do I say it? Well, China started live streaming, but but Korea started the. I I will live stream me eating. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah, <laughs> like skinny girls will be eating huge bowls of whatever. <laughs> yeah, so they started all the weird weird things, um, including the the recent trend, but not so recent. Two years ago, the trend was they live stream themselves sleeping, right. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously that trend may or may not be already in the US. I'm not sure, but it's probably uh, very common in China. Um, but they, they started like weird weird things. So I think I've seen like audio, like like uh, like self made radio channels on the app. Yeah, I've seen mm-hmm. like audio audio dating apps. I've seen like you know weird weird things. But generally generally now as of today, I think most most things are a little bit um, a bit copy, and then they kind of localize it fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once in a while you see you know new things but it's a derivative but they kind of kind of you know localize it like for example you know like Korea probably have a dating app but it's via horoscopes right and mm. it's it's huge right and it's a Korean Korean hor- horoscope it's a different thing right um, and then recently I saw a company which is really cool but I don't know whether I should share, but it's telemedicine, but for shamans. Right? Really? Yeah. You know what shamans are, right? So, Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, the in Korea, the shaman culture is very, very prevalent. Um, and because of COVID, you can't physically go and see someone. <laughs> so so you can video chat a shaman. <laughs> the virtual shaman. Yeah, 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 the revenue is nuts. It went, it went crazy. So I love, I love all this stuff. I was like, oh, this is cool. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Um, right. So so I, I think there's there's kind of like local issues and then there, there will be teams doing it. But a lot of it is still early or they, are, they haven't really kind of became huge. Uh, they are like on their way to, to being big. Um, but, but you can kind of see a few things. The reason is uh, the last 10 years, the startup culture have changed. Right? Uh, people are more receptive to building things, right? They have a dev shop, they can build four or five products, they can try different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make money, make you know, on consulting, they can build stuff on the site. Um, uh, it's now okay to start your own, you know, company or two or three friends start something. It's quite, quite, quite normal. Normal as in people know what it is, but it may not be normal in, the difference in level of normal is different every country. Um, but at least it's better 
again, 10 years ago. Um, so, so you tend to see people try different things. And the other thing is, I've, I've heard from engineers and founders who are technical, you know, uh, they, they are tired of building copycat products. Mm-hmm. Right? So they may have been in their third startup. And then, you know, maybe they, they, they had some good, good outcome. And then they left. And then I asked them what, what you want to build. Yeah, the first thing they tell me, I don't want to build a me too thing. I, I want to do something different. And many of them actually went into the crypto area, <laughs> uh-huh. which may mean they will never come back. So, so I don't know where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> because crypto is like global from day one. If I can be unique, I'll be unique, right? Yeah. But if you're, if you're in, you know, in our region, then it's very hard to think of something really, really unique. Um, so, 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 but, Kudos to them. They are trying. They, they are trying their best to, to think out of the box and maybe move to the US. You know, apply to YC, like, like make it make make something global, make something different. Yeah, but I think the, it's the nature of the density of the 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 ecosystem. Right? Mm-hmm. The more people in it, the more people who do it more and more often. Then you see some of these people. Oh, I I don't wanna I don't wanna build a startup that raise money anymore. I wanna build startups with friends. SaaS and then I break even from day one, right? Yeah, I, I heard I heard this too, right? Oh, I don't want VC, right? I heard this. Oh, I don't want to build a me too company. I want to build something, you know, uh, different. Or I want to do something harder, right? Deep tech, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So 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 that's coming. That's coming, which is a good thing. It's coming. That sounds really exciting. I uh I can't wait to touch base in a couple of years and see what's changed, um, and uh, how this all plays out, um. Jeff, I don't want to take up more of your time, but thank you so much for sharing all of your perspective and insights and for all the help that you gave me back in the day and for hopefully all the help that you'll be giving via this podcast to the people who are listening. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my last thing is uh, do do come by, do travel when you can, come come over. I think for those of you who are curious about Southeast Asia, please come by, you know, just, uh, you know make, make more friends, understand the countries better. Uh, for those of you who are from this region, you know, Vietnamese Americans, uh, Filipino Americans. I mean, yeah, keep keep coming. If you have never been back, you know, to your homeland, please, 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 please go back and, and look at how it has changed. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks again, and um, you know, really appreciate you taking the time, and um, hope to have, be able to keep these conversations going. Thank you, thank you, Raming. Thanks again for listening to the International Expansion Podcast. If you found this information helpful, I hope you'll subscribe and share this info with a friend or colleague. As a reminder, if you or your company is looking for guidance on your international expansion journey, from sizing and prioritizing markets to getting up to speed on local conditions, finding world-class talent, or building up your brand and revenue, please visit portofentrypartners.com and send us a note. Until next time, take care.